When CMOs are left out of the boardroom, their insights and the business risks and opportunities that their expertise might identify are lost. Research from Spencer Stewart in 2019 showed that marketers serving as directors on Fortune 1000 company boards remains surprisingly low, with only 26 of the thousands of public company board seats occupied by marketing leaders. And according to exec search firm Corn Ferry in 2021, marketers are still fairly sparse on board seats. Hi, I am Connor Byrne, and this is That's What I Call Marketing. Today, I am joined by somebody who wants to change all that. Sherilyn Shackle, founder and CEO of the Marketing Academy. It's an international not-for-profit organization dedicated to inspiring and developing talented stars in the marketing, media, and communication industries to become the leaders and influencers of tomorrow. She really believes that these sectors have a unique power to shape our collective opinions as a society. In this episode, we discuss what the Marketing Academy is about and how it is going to reshape the boards of tomorrow. We discuss the different programs it offers to marketers, the impact that it is having on the sector across the markets it operates in, as well as future plans for growth. But we spent a lot of time today talking about what you can do to think about your path, the path that you are on. We talk about positive intent, our own responsibility for our reactions and the energy we expend and share. Sherilyn had a near death experience and that shaped her now worldview, but it's her desire that no one has to go through that. So no matter what stage you are at in your marketing career, give yourself some time today to listen to some amazing advice from a truly wonderful guest. Sherilyn, thanks a million for joining me on That's What I Call Marketing. Great to have you here. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm delighted to be here. Well, listen, we're here to talk all things Marketing Academy. So can I just start with the the two-minute, maybe elevator-style pitch of what, for people who don't know, what is the Marketing Academy? Okay. Well, look, we're a place of development and learning. So we exist to give the emerging leaders and CMOs within our industry all of the capabilities they need to get much, much further in their career. We focus on them being the most exceptional human beings they can be, the most inspirational leaders, the most exceptional marketers. And we do that across two programs, the scholarship program for emerging leaders, the fellowship program for brand side CMOs. And we do that in three regions. So UK and Europe, the US and Australia. What's unusual about us is that we're a not-for-profit organization and therefore our programs are all free. They are highly selective. It's quite hard to get in. And in fact, I heard a stat a few weeks ago that made me really thrilled because we discovered that it's harder to get into the marketing company than it is to get into Harvard and Stanford. really seriously cool and so obviously a huge gratitude to all of the organizations that nominate their talent um, that you know will ultimately go through the selection process to be selected but the program is free of charge because honestly we believe that the kind of learning that we deliver should be something that's a gift to the industry and also everyone that contributes to the learning all of our mentors, all of our executive coaches, the incredible speakers, they all give their time to us for free. Right. And therefore, if they're gifting us their time, it's just not right to, to charge off the back of that. So the programs are totally free. The, the cohorts only have to pay their accommodation. And we do do some rather intensive boot camps and residentials. 
Um, so we've been in the UK now 13 years. We've been in the States for five. We've been in Australia for nine. And we have a community of just over a thousand alumni that have been through our programs. Wow. And we also run alumni programs for them for each of the programs in each of the territories. So it, all, all in all, we're delivering 10 programs. And then two years ago, we delivered, we developed a virtual campus program, which is an online program, which whilst it's not open, it's kind of invitation only for our community, all of the people that gift in to our community. There is an opportunity for anybody that has been made redundant, you know, or is facing career transition to get a golden ticket to enroll on that program. And because of that, we've got over eight and a half thousand people enrolled on a 12 month learning program around leadership, self mastery and well-being. So that's really cool. And that's only been out for the last two years. So if there's any listeners that have been made redundant, you could be you could absolutely get an opportunity to enroll on that program. And the content is amazing. Amazing. That's what we do. That's what we do. That's all we do. That's all you do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thanks for your time today. <laughs> but what I find interesting, so you're you're not a marketer. No. Now you have said, I did hear you say that you think you would have been a good one, a good suit. What? I, would, I think I would have gone into agency yeah. because, because our scholarship, um, the the program that we have for the emerging leaders between ten and eighteen years experience. So they're not they're not youngsters; they're emerging leaders. That program is covers the whole industry. So marketing, media owners, media agencies and creative agencies. And I'm pretty sure getting to know them that had I gone down a different route when I was in my 20s, I would have loved, loved to work in an agency. And I reckon I would have worked kind of client account size. So I'm not a creative at all. Although people think I am, I'm not. Um, And my brain doesn't think like that either. But I do think I'd have made a good suit. I reckon I'd have, I'd have, been, <laughs> I'd have been quite good with the whole client management stuff. So yeah. that's rather not taken. But I'm not a marketeer either. Yeah. And so I want to get to that in, in a bit about how this came about, right? How you ended up marketing. But so your your background was in, well, a few things, but in, in recruitment was kind of your yeah. headhunting. Am I right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. From From a baby. I was 24. When I fell in to that industry, which, given that I'm 58, it's a long time ago. And, um, and then it was quite a, it's not like this anymore, but it used to be quite a brutal, highly commercial, very salesy yeah. environment. I didn't really know any different. And I, and I fell into it. And, um, and I discovered that I was very good at it. And it is and can be quite a lucrative profession. Yeah. And so that was my path. I just got better and better at it and got more and more senior. And then when I was in my early 30s, I bought the company that I was running. So I did a, an MBO and I ran that for a good 10 years. So it was quite a successful headhunting firm. And we would do, our, our clients were most of the really big blue chip type b2c and b2b organizations and i would work at board level across all of the functions but the ones i'd always try and pinch from my consultants were the were the ones that were searching for cmos (laughs) so i I began my fascination you know with the world of marketing through recruiting 
those that kind of talent we didn't do many because we yeah. were very broad but you know whenever we did I would just gravitate towards them and spending um, a lot of time interviewing CMOs I really did understand learn to understand what they what power they have available to them um, but talking to the CEO clients I realized that actually the CEOs themselves didn't understand the power that their CMO could bring to them, which okay. used to frustrate me like mad. So I'd often have a conversation with the CEO of an organization saying, look, if your CMO is not in the center of your boardroom, you don't have your customer there. You know, they okay. are the ones that have the heartbeat in the palm of their hands. They know your customer's blood pressure. They know everything. If you don't have them in the boardroom, you're not going to get growth through your customer. And then back then, there weren't very many CMOs that were actually on the boards in the UK. When I launched the fellowship, um, which is the senior role for CMOs that we run, there were only at that time three board-level CMOs in the FTSE 100. Really? So, yeah, so all of the FTSE have CMOs, but only three of them were actually on the main boards. Right. And I just couldn't get my head around it. And, and you know, the whole industry was beating a drum back then because the CMO was just underestimated. And therefore, the, the function of marketing was underinvested in. And I had a real problem with that. So that, that, that's kind of where my uh, real interest in, in marketing specifically really first started to raise its head. And then once we'd launched the academy and I really got to understand Adland and the media world, um, then that interest just, you know, got expanded exponentially. And, you know, I realised that this is the place that I need to be and this is the work we need to be doing. I, find, I, I do find it fascinating. And sorry, I, I, I say this then, but, I, you know, my own background is not directly in marketing. I was in hospitality and non-profit so I you know I kind of found my way into it, it, it as well but like how you were just so drawn to it I mean Barry I, I think lots of huge entrepreneurial background in your family I know you you know your mom was an entrepreneur in the sense of owning shops and you then had your own business but but what was it about the marketing piece that you were drawn to was you were you just interested in the conversations like, I'm just really curious I find it fascinating I was interested in the impact and influence, right? So, so, so here's actually what happened. I've been running my search firm for 10 years. Um, and I never recognized in that time that I was actually very unhappy. So I had an illness that happened when I was 42 um, that nearly killed me overnight. And the, and the recovery of it, which, which is obvious because I'm here, um, the recovery led, led, led me down a path of, reflection and introspection okay. and I and I had to begin to admit to myself that actually in that career I had whilst I was good at it and made money at it was highly successful monetarily right. um, the life I was living through the choices that I was making was not the best it could be and had actually been taken apart in manifesting my illness and I really did take it as a as a big universal wake-up call for me and I had already 
had the fire of leadership development being a passion had was already lit because whilst I was running my search firm, I was also on the board of a leadership development company whose program is actually embedded now in the scholarship. They're called the living leader. And the journey I went on with them going through their program and then going through the train the trainer of this leadership development program really lit this passionate flame about developing other leaders. So I was already there at that, I was there at that point when I got ill. The recovery from the illness and I was still running my search from leading into the recession. So it's 2008, I was ill. You know, 2009, the world went to pieces. Yeah. And I knew, all, all I knew was that I was passionate about leadership. When I was talking or doing any kind of leadership development, I was absolutely in flow and loved every right. second of it. When I was doing recruitment, when I was leading a search, when I was pitching to companies to get searches, uh, I was never at my best then. Um, and I was incredibly stressed, held a huge amount of anxiety, was running quite a big firm and um, working every hour God sent. You know, I was on that, I often call it the treadmill of doom. I was on the, I was on that treadmill that I had achieved a certain level of success. Yes. Only in monetary term, money, monetary and material terms. So, you know, you get a bigger house, you get a nicer car, you start going on nicer holidays. And then you get terrified that you're going to lose it because it feels really good. So that means you have to work even harder because of the fear that comes in that you're going to lose it, that you're going to fail, that you're going to fuck it up, that you're going to be homeless. And you work even harder and harder and harder, harder. So the money doesn't bring you happiness and can, if you make the wrong choices, bring harm. And to me, that's what happened. And working those hours, holding that amount of stress and worry, uh, hardly ever seeing my husband, never seeing my kids. Right. Um, you know, I just wasn't the best person I should be. So in the recovery of the illness, I really had to figure out if I didn't want to be, if I needed to change my life, which I did, and I didn't want to be a headhunter, which I didn't, <laughs> what the hell else yeah. was I going to do? And all I knew at that point and going through that bit of the journey, I don't like that word journey, but I did go on a bit of a journey. <laughs> I was passionate about leadership. I was passionate about developing other leaders. And I knew that really powerful leadership could have the biggest impact in the world. And so there were a number of different um, situations that happened in a very short period of time that ultimately led to the curation of what the Marketing Academy would be. And a lot of people were involved in that with me. But the bottom line is, I honestly couldn't think of another function like marketing, another function or another industry like media and advertising yeah. that literally has influence over seven and a half billion people on the planet. Yeah. And I, and I just couldn't think of another, there's no other industry or function combined, you know, function within a company or the industry of advertising, media, media owners, et cetera, that had that amount of influence. And therefore, I knew I wanted to do something that was non-commercial. That was part of my recovering from okay. I wanted to run a business that was for good. And therefore, it needed to be a not-for-profit or a charity. And I wanted it to be in the industry or sector that would literally make the biggest impact in the world. And that was going to be marketing, media and advertising. 
you know, I could have put the academy in finance. It could have been the finance That's academy, right. That's it's the ask. academy or the procurement academy mm -hmm. or in industries. It could have been the sports academy or the catering academy or the hospitality academy. Yeah. Because the actual, what we then ultimately develop could fit in any function and in any industry. But it was important to me that if I was going to uh, bring together all of these incredible very senior, very seasoned business leaders and ask for their time for free to develop talent. I wanted their time and energy and wisdom to be expended on those who could make the biggest influence in the world. And therefore, it had to be the Marketing Academy. And that's what I, I'd learned about the power of marketing through being a headhunter. Um, amazing. So a question for you. At that time, because that's obviously a hugely important period you know free for lots of reasons you know um but did you think of going into like into the non not-for-profit sector and actually saying well you know so you've created a not-for-profit organization but did you ever think of actually i could just bring that leadership to non-profit organizations yes i did in that i i considered uh, quite early on that if I if I couldn't if if I wasn't getting if I wasn't achieving my purpose through the job that I was doing yeah that I would get involved in the charity and not for profit sector like as a trustee or a non a, right. a non exec and I sought some of those but we were bang smack in that recession yeah so they were all bleeding. And, you know, they were many of them were closing down and I couldn't find an NED role or a trustee role that would fit what I felt I could contribute at that time. But I did look, I really did. I sought them out and I couldn't find them. And then I thought, well, I can't, because I thought it would need to be around leadership or yeah. around developing young talent. I just couldn't find any. So, um, and, and so I thought, well, I'll set one up. And, and to be honest, it was two years before I closed my search firm because that was providing me with income. And for the first two years, the academy was a real passion project. And so I funded most of it in, in, in terms of funding all of the resource that went into it until we hit the stage where we were attracting the sponsors because we all, it's 100% sponsor funded. And then we took the academy. Oh, then we launched the fellowship and took the academy to Australia around about the same time. By that time, we'd hit critical mass and awareness that we were able to quite regularly attract um, sponsorship income. Right. And at that point, the marketing academy could afford to invest in a CEO. And unfortunately, I got the job. <laughs> How did, the, how did the interview go? Yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> I have a fantastic board. Many of them have been with me for 13 years. You know, they came on board before we even launched. And, you know, they've always been massively supportive. But, you know, closing my search firm was obviously a really big decision because, as I said, it's, quite, it's very lucrative. But I had to just learn to let that go. You know, I'm, I, I'm privileged that I was in the position that I could take, you know, quite a big cut in income. And I'm and I'm really fortunate with that. So that's like a blessing I have yeah. that enabled me to be able to make the choices I made 
that I was going to live, you know, quite a different, or we as a family, because I've always been the, the, the breadwinner, um, we as a family could live, you know, a good enough life. Yeah. You know, I remember my husband saying when I first said, look, I'm going to close the business, it will probably never be rich again. <laughs> <laughs> at the time we're living in a six bedroom house i mean seriously it's ridiculous and he literally said how many rooms do we need we can yeah. be in one room at a time you know it's okay that was after i picked him up off the floor obviously i needed to, I needed to bring him around to the concept just a little bit but he said to me is this going to make you happy and i said yes it is and he said that i'm right there i'm right with you it was remarkable. And so, you know, I consider myself utterly, well, I was privileged to have been in that situation at that time. I continue to be privileged because I'm living my best life. I'm living my purpose. I found my purpose in everything that the Academy is. Um, and it's a joy and a blessing and a privilege every single day to be able to work with these incredible, talented people all over the world. It's just a gift. Oh, it's amazing to have... You know, that, that that moment, and again, not something that you would ever wish on somebody to, to go through what you went through, you know, in terms of your health and, you know, yeah. really how bad that clearly clearly was. But to have that, I guess, ability. I, I met with Vanessa Sawyer, who um, has an influencer marketing agency called Get Stuff Done. And, and during COVID, she had a like very similar, like she was on ventilators and, you know, she came out of the other side and she's like, you know, she wanted to do something that had, had a purpose and i think you know the word purpose you know i don't want to use it in in, right, in, so in a trite way isn't now. it it's so overused but it still says what it is i, it, I yeah. think and i can i can imagine what she went through because i remember thinking during the recovery and at the point where we got so really excited about developing the strategy for what the marketing academy was going to be um, and, and when we began to deliver their learning, I, I was adamant that no one should ever need, uh, you know, a life-threatening situation or, uh, you know, or, a, or real adversity or real trauma or loss to be able to step back and think about yeah. how they want to live their life. And unfortunately... We do live our lives in this very automated way, you know, where we're literally just putting one foot in front of the other and we get on that treadmill. And then when we're on that treadmill, really hard to step off it and look at it and be honest with yourself and, and really um, examine what it is that's going to give you joy and what it is that's going to, you know, set your heart alight and what it is that's going to make an impact and what it is that, that you do that might leave a legacy and what it is yeah. that you might have a good impact on the world. You know, we don't, we're just thinking, oh my, you know, within our industry particularly, especially in the agencies that I often feel are so overworked, there's such a huge amount of stress. Yeah. It's getting a bit better now, but over the last decade I've seen, you know, our our scholars on their knees, you know, working until one o'clock in the morning on a pitch. And and therefore nobody's ever got the time or the instigation, you know, or the, yeah. the moment to go, oh, I've got to take a breath. And what we do with all of our cohorts is we're creating an environment where they can take that breath and and really examine, you know, what who they are, why they are, who they are, 
what choices they've made and why they've chosen them, the beliefs they've hold and why they believe them and, you know, the behaviours and choices they're making. We enable them to go through that thought process because we don't want people to have to have had to. I've spoken to so many people that have done a, that have had a, literally a life changing experience. Um, and you think, oh, like I felt, oh, my God, if I'd gone through this thinking 10 years ago. Yeah. Academy would be in 20 countries by now because I would have had more energy, more, you know, there would have been so much more. And so when we design the scholarship and the fellowship programs and the alumni programs, we're endeavoring to create that life changing moment. Without it being a life threatening moment. Yeah, without it being a traumatic experience yeah. in any context. So anybody can do that. Well, know, that's what I was going to ask. If, so that's what would, if someone's listening today going, yeah, but I'm not on the scholarship or the fellow, you know, whatever. Right? But mm-hmm. what what could somebody do to kind of have that pause, like that break and ask themselves a question like that? Because I think it, you're right. Like it's so important. And I think being able to understand who, who you truly are, like what your core beliefs are. I think that's for me, like I've done that. And it's like one of the most important things I've done because I, you know, you question yourself and, you know, should I be, should I be this way? But yes, be your core, be yourself. Right. And so what advice would you have for somebody? Is there something they could do tomorrow morning that would help them kind of go and right? Who am I? (laughs) Big question. Well, I think there is, I mean, it needs a little bit of thought and preparation um, the first thing you've got to do is carve out time, right? And even that can be hard, right? Because if you've had a really heavy week, the last thing you want to do on a weekend is sit on a mountaintop somewhere and internalize, right? So it's, t- so it's hard, you know, hard to do. But there's a couple of different things that we, that we encourage the scholars to do. So the first thing is around your mindset, right? Because we're very often become... I hate to use this word, but I haven't found a better word. We quite often become victims. Mm-hmm. And many times of our own choices, but our brains don't like to accept that. And therefore, we kind of shift the blame outside of us, right? So we'll start to go, oh, you know, I'm absolutely exhausted. I've done so many meetings this week and, you know, my boss is on my back all the time and I'm really stressed and frustrated. And that's their fault, Mm-hmm. Right, it's my company's fault, it's my boss's fault, or it's my team's fault, it's my client's fault. Very easy to do that because we don't like to be, we don't like to be held, we don't like to hold ourselves accountable. But the truth of the matter is, you've got a hundred percent responsibility available in real terms for every single decision and choice you make. But we don't often think about the choices we're making because they're automatic. You know, I often speak with my scholars and go, you know, how, how many meetings have you got in a week? And then we go, 35. And I'll literally say, why the fuck are you accepting so many meetings? <laughs> why are you doing that? And here's the thing, you know, just on that, you know, we accept meetings that are driven from anything other than the need to be there, usually. You know, we, we accept a meeting because FOMO, right? We think yes. we're going to miss out on something. We'll attend a meeting because we think that will look good, which is ego, right? Mm-hmm. That's I'm going to go to that meeting because it will make me look good. That's ego, or pride. Um, I'm going to go to that meeting because I'm absolutely not sure that the people working under me are good enough to do that meeting on their own. That's self selfishness. Um, so 
you've really got to, you can just think about your mindset and start to challenge yourself on some of the choices that you're making. Do I really have to be at that meeting? Am I really going to add value to that meeting? Could it actually be quite empowering for my team to hold that meeting on their own? In that, do I trust them? Should, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, great leaders trust everyone around them and think that they're better than they are, right? So you can start to just think that a little bit differently and start to understand that when anything happens to you, you have a choice in the way in which you respond to it, right? It's a gap. It's a moment of time. Something happens to you. Your boss asks you to do something. You should get a shitty email from someone, you know, and you'll go, oh, my God, that, that person just made me feel angry. Yeah. Yeah. She wrote that on that email. Well, no, she didn't make you feel angry. You haven't got a button that says press this button and it will make me angry. You've chosen that your response to it will be anger. That's a choice. Let it go. You know, because you could choose to think, well, she's only sent that shitty email because something really horrible might have happened to her this morning. Right? It's a choice. So mindset and challenging your mindset, I think, is important. Journaling, I think, is very important. Another tip that we give to the scholars is to is to hold gratitude journals. Oh, yeah. I used to think it was a little bit woo-woo and, you know, tree-huggy-ish. But actually, there's obviously been studies done, and Harvard's done a, a, like, a, a, like a mini MBA on happiness. And um, there are studies done about the fact that if you – at the end of the day, before you go to sleep, you write down in a, in a journal just three or four things yeah. that, that day that you're truly, truly grateful for. You will wake up in a psychologically much more positive mood than if you don't if you don't have that, which is remarkable, but makes complete sense when you think about it. And what's also brilliant about journaling what you're grateful for is that also works on your mindset because what happens then if you know, if you get into the discipline of having to do it, you start to look for things okay. grateful for, right? So yeah. instead of looking for all the things that wind you up, you can start looking for things like how the barrister smiled at you when, he gave, when they gave you their, your coffee in the morning or how beautiful the sunset was or that one tiny little conversation that you had with the boss that's actually usually adversarial and actually – they said something really quite nice that those are the things that you begin to see, you begin to look for them. So that can help with mindset just to alleviate the pressure of all of the stress and anxiety that we tend to hold. If you're in a place of stress and anxiety, it's really hard, hard to step back. Yes. And everything that's going on in your life. So once you've worked on that a little bit is literally carving out time, time to quite literally, if possible, sit on a mountaintop on your own, and think about right here's the biggest tip I can give you there are books about this now and it's called Ikigai which the whole purpose brigade repurposed as a kind of a purpose-led Venn diagram right Mm -hmm. so Ikigai which was created by these Japanese people off the coast of Japan the happiest place on earth and the place that's got the most, the highest proportion of over a hundred year olds, they live by this Japanese philosophy of Ikigai, which basically means that things in your life are things that you're absolutely brilliant at things that can, can give you an income. So they feed you things that are really good for the world uh, and the things that you love. All right. So what you love, what you're brilliant at, what you get paid for, what's good for the world. And if you can find things in your life that hit those four quadrants, anybody that Googles this will see 
Venn diagram show up and lots and lots of iterations of it, but it's all from this ancient philosophy of Ikigai. And you can literally use that framework to ask yourself the questions that will lead to the answers. So, you know, here's, I'll give you four examples. So what do I love? So that would be, what am I doing or talking about that fills me with joy? Yeah. And that might be more than one thing, right? Yeah. So what am I good at? That might be, because we're rubbish at thinking about it. Uh, I was going to say, that's hard, isn't it, for people? Really hard. Yeah. So let's that. What do people come to me for when they're okay. asking advice? What do people tell me my superpowers are? What are the things that I regularly get in appraisals or in when I'm being appreciated that I'm really good at? That will help inform that, right? So what do I love? What am I really good at? What do I get paid for? Well, that's your job, usually. But... You can also start exploring whether there are things that you're good at and that, you're, and that you love that you could turn into a side hustle that might make you a little bit more income right. and ultimately might be a career path for you. But if you're examining your, where, where you're working, what your job you're doing, you've got to think about what gives me joy in the job. So when I'm in the job, am I in flow? Am I, do I forget to eat when I'm yeah. doing my work, Right. That's, not because you have 35 meetings <laughs> yeah and then and that's the stuff that you're probably really good at and also are loving yeah and that might include the company uh, the job that you're doing now in the company that you're now working for and it might not and yeah. you've got to be open enough to explore that and then what's good for the world that doesn't need this doesn't need to be very heavy right um and i think a lot of people get confused with what that means and they automatically mean that if i'm seeking something that's good for the world then I've got to go and work for a not-for-profit or my business has to be social purpose-led or, and it might, but there's lots of other things that are good for the world that might be in your life. It doesn't all have, have to be in one thing. You know, you might be, um, you might have a hobby that brings other people joy. So for yeah. example, if your hobby is artwork, creating artwork, if you Start putting that out. That will bring joy to other people. That's good for the world, right? And there aren't many companies that don't offer some sort of product or service that's good for the world in some context. Yeah. So people immediately think, oh, well, that's it then. You know, if I work for a cigarette company, there's no way can I meet that purpose need. Well, yeah, yeah. you can, because actually they grow tobacco in some of the tobacco leaves in some of the poorest countries in the world, and a cigarette manufacturer will be supporting those farmers. So you have to dig deep on this stuff. But when you do, there's a lot of things that everybody is doing that's ultimately good for the world. But when you look at it, when you stand back and you look at it and you fill those sort of four quadrants with lots of different things, the key then is to look to see whether there's any connections across the four areas. Because if there are connections across all four, the theory is that you've then discovered your purpose. Okay. I'm not convinced about that, if I'm completely honest. And what we say to our scholars is, so long as you've got things going on in your life in all four quadrants and you have the balance right, right, need to be one thing. It doesn't need to be all in one job. It could be a job that actually you don't like very much, but it's paying your bills because actually... You're getting you're all the other stuff. Yeah, you're spending yeah. a load of time on the stuff that gives you joy. So... That's that's a framework that's sort of out in the ether that you can use, and it's one that we teach in the scholarship, and it just allows people 
that time to step back and ask yourselves the honest question, why am I here? Yeah. What am I here for? What am I going to love why I'm here? What legacy am I going to leave? Yeah. It's not, it isn't hard. It's just not, not necessarily simple. Yeah. <clears throat> I, th- I My very, very first guest for this podcast was John Goldstone. And he... He talked yeah. about this in he's brilliant. Uh, he was he, one of our first ever mentors for the scholarship. Was he? Oh yeah. That doesn't surprise me. Like honestly, John. So we did. I've I've done a bit of work with John, and you know he's forever available. If yeah. I ask John a question, he's just one of the you know just such a wonderful person. But he talked about you know being being somewhere where you can do great work and stuff that you're proud of. You know, and so it's kind of similar to that, like finding. The energy, you know, mm. what is what is it, you know, when you're getting up in the morning, look, every day I think has different parts to it. And there's things you're going to just not love doing. And that's, yeah. that's life, right? Like, and it's okay <laughs> so long as you're filling your cup somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So find exactly finding those things that are, that are the balance. There's going to be, you know, the budget meeting that's not going to be fun, but the creative meeting might. And so, yeah. you know, if you've got, if that's your day, then yeah. that's okay. A really good tip I'll share with you from one of our one, one of our faculty. So he talks at all of the scholarships and he's one of my Aussie scholarship alumni. And then went on set up a business which is all about energy management. And the okay. really good tip that he gives is, you know, if you know in your day there's gonna be people that um Sean would call emotional vampires or mood right. hoovers. I call them dementors. You know, there's people that like suck the living lifeblood out of you and you know <laughs> that you've got a meeting with one of those people in the day. Uh, a tip is to bookend it with a meeting or just a conversation with someone who fills your cup, with someone who Brilliant. gives you joy. Just bookend it like a 30-second conversation with your best mate before you go into that meeting. And then the other tip he gives is, um, and th- that we've, we build on throughout the program is that um, if somebody is behaving in a way, I don't believe that anybody wakes up in the morning to be an emotional vampire or a mood hoover or, you know, it's going to make your life a living hell. I don't honestly agree. Anybody wakes up in the morning thinking of feeling that. And so if they're showing up like that and it's, and it's often, there's going to be things going on for that person that you have no idea about. And so the first way to counter it is to think of them with empathy and compassion. Hard to do when they're being a dick, right? It's hard to do. But you've really got to understand that nobody wants to be like that. And there may well be even bigger emotional vampires in that person's life that might go into their whole life, their home life, you know, as well. That you won't know about so if you if you're showing up with somebody and they're constantly being like that you know a question could be you look a little bit depleted today what can i do to help you right which is very different from sitting in front of them fe- feeling and behaving quite hostile because you know yeah, they're gonna yeah. be so you know you can think about those in different ways the whole um the whole philosophy of managing energy in and out is is phenomenal and you can utilize it in any area of your life. Yeah, and I agree, like so I agree with that. The po- like positive intent, you know, assume positive intent. I, I agree. To, I don't think anybody intends, you know, or wakes up in the morning going, "I'm I have a meeting at eleven. I'm going to be absolutely horrible." Because you know, like who who does that? And so I like being able to reverse 
like the perception you have and just kind of like you say like what is that what what could possibly go, be going on for that person and, like make up the most the craziest worst case scenario and maybe that's what it is and you know and then, like, and then you just you will think about them differently yeah even if you even if nothing changes with them you will think about them differently and if you're thinking about them differently you'll respond and behave a bit differently yeah but if you're thinking of them as a dick and an arse and your expectation is that they're going to make your life hell in this meeting, that's exactly what's going to happen. Because your brain will be seeking affirmation that your beliefs about them are true. Yeah. So change your belief about them. And then you'll seek affirmation that those are true. And it's a completely different, you'll get a completely different outcome. Where did all, so all I mean, th- this, you know, and seems very important to, to the Marketing Academy programs yeah. that you run is actually these bits it's not necessary like we haven't once spoken about marketing <laughs> do- i know we do we do cover it <laughs> <laughs> like- we do it's about it's about let me think so obviously one big area of the scholarship and the fellowship is mentoring right so our scholars the emerging leaders will spend time with the CEOs of the ad agencies, the CEO of the media owners and the CMOs in the brand. So they get a lot of input from them. They get a lot lot of input about life stuff as well. But, you know, if they've got some sort of challenges that they're facing that's very specific to something that that mentor has had a career spike in, then then that's likely to, the output of that is likely to be a little bit more transactionally around the skill and the craft. Um, And then probably about 25% of the programming of the learning within the boot camps and residential, not the residentials, the boot camps for the scholars uh, will be marketing experts. So, you know, our faculty includes people like Mark Ritson and Rory Sutherland. And, you know, all, we had the um, one with Daryl Fielding talking about her recent book on brand at the scholarship. So uh, just last week. So there's about 20, 20 to 25% is about the art and the science and the skill yeah. of marketing. But it's challenging for us to do that because of the diversity within a room of scholars, given that we're going to have we're going to have strategists, planners, creatives and suits from within the agencies. And then in the marketers, we're going to have social media experts. So we're going to have brand experts. We're going to we'll have strategists but in brand. So it, it's actually quite difficult to deliver a huge amount of marketing content when they're in a plenary group because it's we need the learning to hit the broadest number of the 30 scholars that are in the room where they get the real insight and i can already see it playing out on the whatsapp group for this most recent cohort is they get it from each other right that never can you get that kind of community of 30 together across the entire industry without ego without pride without competitiveness you know completely open transparent across all industries sometimes even competing companies and share their craft their ideas their solutions with each other so they learn a massive amount on the scholarship from each other around marketing but it's the area that i don't teach on because i don't know you know not marketer can't add any value at all i can add shitloads of value to a lot of other areas but not when it comes to marketing but Um, it's very important and then the fellowship is structured slightly differently because I know the, like you were talking about the selection criteria and, and then how you actually almost build the cohort. Can you talk about that through? through? Yeah, so the two programs are different uh, and the selection process on the two are different. So very quickly, the fellowship is designed for client, uh, brand side CMOs only. 
So there's no, we unfortunately cannot include the agencies. Very difficult at that level because we have to get them being so open and transparent about every area of their life. Right. And we can't legislate for having a CMO and their own agency in that room. And we don't want to put pressure on either side yeah. to be really open. So unfortunately, I might create a, another one at this level for agencies. I just yeah. need some for it but i know exactly what that might look like um the fellowship program is designed to get cmos onto boards as ceos ultimately as ceos or bigger broader higher impact roles at board so that the whole curriculum is designed so there's no marketing content whatsoever in the fellowship right the selection process is slightly different with the scholarship they have to be nominated first and then they get invited to apply and when they get invited to apply, they've then got to provide a three three um, parts of an application, their CV, an endorsement from their employers to explain, you know, how they think and feel about that individual and that they support them going on the programme and why, why they should get a place. And then they have to produce a two-minute showcase me. So in the UK, the showcase me is in any medium of their choosing. Okay. So it could be as, as, as small as a a face to mobile phone camera just talking about themselves for two minutes uh, or it can be a very elaborate physical you know tactical showcase me of which over the years we've had some incredible ones yeah. um, that they believe sum up who they are what they, what they want to bring and why they want to place on the program and then they go through a two-stage selection process in interviews so the first is what we call the pitch interview, half an hour with one of our alumni with right. a, um, a scripted question from the interviewer so that everybody's asked exactly the same questions. And then if they get through that stage, they then go to a face-to-face -face interview with two panel members um, and they're hour long. Well, between hour and 90 minutes, we schedule for those meetings, which is a very deep dive by two people, one of which is likely to be an HR expert and okay. one will be likely to be an agency or marketing leader, CMO or CEO. And um, so there's quite a, it's very competitive in all three countries now. It's really competitive. But we do get feedback that the selection process itself enables people to think more deeply about mm. themselves. Um, so we tend to get good feedback from, from those that unfortunately haven't made it in. And we have a high proportion that will apply multiple times yeah. because more often than not, they're not on the program because we may feel it's the wrong year for them, you know, or, you know, they're not quite there. There's a certain pivot point that you should be at. You should really be just at that point where you're going to really swing out wide. And, um, and that's a good pivot point. Um, but there's lots and lots and lots of different reasons why they're not selected. And sometimes it's not anything to do with them because, as I said, we do curate, we have to curate that cohort. So we look at diversity in its broader sense of the word and yeah. in context. And, you know, we have to ensure that that's fitting within that cohort. So, you know, we haven't got to just look at the basics of, you know, gender and um, race and sexuality. Well, no, we don't look at sexuality, although it does come up. Um, uh, but we also look at sectors, industries, you know, type of business, corporate or SME or, or not-for-profit or charity or entrepreneurial, and then cu curate a cohort. And our idea around curating the cohort really is 
if we couldn't get a single speaker to a boot camp, could those 30 scholars create a learning experience that's even better than we can create? Okay, wow. Because of the breadth of their learning. And that also applies to the fellowship, the CMO fellowship. So they have a short, it's a, it's a less onerous selection process because there's less of them, right? right. There's only one per company. And so we asked them to do an application, a 12-page application form with a couple of essays, their CV, and they're also asked to do an employer's endorsement. And then we shortlist to interview, to, to have a meeting with a member of the selection panel so that we can then curate the final cohort. And the maximum class size is 25. In fact, we've never had 25. Our maximum class size has been 24. And actually, the sweet spot for the CMO program is about 20. Right, okay. So it's, again, very selective. And we've got to look at, you know, the types of businesses that they're in because we've, we need to design the curriculum around the cohort, much more so on the fellowship than we need to do on the scholarship. But, you know, if the curriculum doesn't land on the fellowship with every single CMO in that room, we failed. Yeah. So we have to make sure that that, that cohort is, um, we've got the ability to be able to deliver them all what they need. And we have to think about that very carefully. How do you think about scale then? Because, you know, it's, it's such a tight selection criteria, you know, rightly so. Mm. But, but I think part of this as well is you want to get this to as wide an audience as possible over, I guess, over time. But how do you think about the scale? I guess There's you've gone two, into new markets. We have. There's two areas around the scale. So we've only grown geographically. Um organically right we never said we never said there's a pin in australia that's a flag we want to go there okay um we were led there by mentors and scholars that that were there, that had gone there and who were phoning us saying the marketing academy should be in australia should be in australia and if you come to australia we'll help you find sponsorship and you know we'll help you find partners and we'll help you find coaches and we'll help you find mentors and and, and so we've always just kind of listened to that and followed that. Um, so it's in Australia. So it was about seven or eight of our community, our community being alum yeah. that, or mentors that, that had gone down there and all saying the same thing. And I just thought, shit, the universe is telling us something. <laughs> and we've got to follow it. So we did. And then the US was one of our big sponsors literally phoned me and said, how do you feel about bringing it to the States? And I went, oh, I haven't. <laughs> I haven't considered it yet that you know that's a huge ask and all of my yeah. all of my natural limiting assumptions are coming up to the fore you know uh, they're gonna they're not gonna like it it's not invented here you know they won't buy into it they blah 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 and then um she literally said look we'll we'll, we'll underpin it from a funding perspective if you can't get sponsors we need it here you should bring it right. and right. and so we went all right then <laughs> and we did um my actual personal Desire is to have them everywhere. I would love, uh, so places of particular interest would be um, Middle East. Okay. I'd really love to bring it to somewhere like Abu Dhabi or Dubai, run it out of Abu Dhabi or, or Dubai for the, uh, for the UAE um, so that we can help develop up the, the, the Emirati or indigenous, the, like the Saudi talent or the um, Abu Dhabi talent um, that are not getting developed because most of the people at the very top are expats. Yeah. And they bugger off and go home. 
So, you know, but, but they don't have time to develop the talent underneath them. So that's a very attractive area for me. Latin America, I think, could be interesting. South Africa could be interesting. Um, but APAC is our big swing out at the moment. So it's the launching the APAC Fellowship Programme, which we will actually run out of Australia, but will cover the whole region. And the residentials will be in Sydney, Singapore and Tokyo, Japan. Okay. Um, that's the first time that we've ever gone into a new region, the new region being wider Asia, uh, with the fellowship first, not scholarship first. So our theory is if we get 20 um, very senior influential CMOs from across that region, then maybe we will be able to build relationships or tweak interest to take the scholarship out there. Now, the scholarship right. will be in each country. Scholarship couldn't be regional because you have to have mentors, coaches, speakers, all in the same geography. But that could be a huge opportunity for us. And then the other opportunity, and it's a really big one if we get this right, is the virtual campus program. Right. Because we were stunned. Apps, we designed it in, at the back end of the pandemic, really for our alumni, because we couldn't get our alumni together enough in each of the countries. I mean, I was banned from Australia and I couldn't go to Australia for two years. Yeah. So we could do very little in person, but we could deliver virtually and we got really good at it. So we decided that we would, for our alumni, the 1,050 of them, that we would curate 12-month rolling program of ongoing learning, inspiration, making the, there's some humorous stuff on there, make them laugh, well-being, they can do yoga on the virtual right. campus, for example. Um, and then... Because they all loved it so much, we said, look, well, look, it doesn't cost us any money to have more people enrolled on the platform. So, you know, you can all enroll members of your teams. And then we said to our sponsors that year, you know, for the first time, how do you feel about us giving you shitloads of places to enroll members of your team yeah. to be able to experience the Marketing Academy learning? And so it became a massive value add to our sponsors because we'd never been able to do that before. Right. And now, well, then, then we decided that we would give it out to people who'd been made redundant or, you know, out of role or in transition in Europe, the States and Australia. And that's why, I mean, we were stunned that we'd hit eight, we hit eight and a half thousand <laughs> this year. Um, and that is a very scalable. Yeah. Program. I mean, we could have a million people on that program. And honestly, if if we could find the funding, I'd have a million. I would have a million people on that. I would give it right to the whole industry as the biggest gift the industry could ever could ever have. Totally free learning at a world class level around leadership, self mastery, professional skills, and well being. I just got to get it funded, and so that could be as we go in our direction of travel um the the virtual campus could be the thing that enables us to impact at massive scale which we were never about you know our, our theory was and still is if we invest this time in the scholars and the fellows at the level that they're at given the types of businesses they're in and the scope and scale and influence that they have as individuals then the ripple effect within the industry will be yeah. enormous yeah. So we stuck with that until the pandemic. And then we start to think, actually, there is a way 
that we can deliver some of this at scale. We could never do this and never would do the scholarship and fellowship at scale. It is really exclusive and it will always remain exclusive. But the virtual campus, that's not the that's same. Amazing. That's very different. Yeah. And I think you're right. That point about the ripple is, is really important, I think, because the impact that people can have in roles they're in, you know, with teams they have, and if people have had these opportunities to have the moment, yeah. you know, it, it, it's incredible, I think, how that how that can change. Can I ask you a question? Maybe the the virtual academy is is one of the things that, that would address that. But how do you how do you think about kind of the the diversity of the industry and you know people in it and how maybe we can be better? Because you know, my sense is that it's it's quite um, narrow. You know the types of people that are in ad agencies and clients they kind of tend to look and sound the same quite often all right so let's be really straight here right the diversity of talent across race is absolutely hideous in marketing media and advertising they are predominantly we are predominantly white middle class privileged and have been to university I didn't understand that when I first launched the academy. I didn't, it wasn't a thing. I didn't yeah. even think about it. And I didn't know the industry well enough to know it was a truth. And it was only really in about year two or three, I started to think, God, they all look the same. They're all fabulous. I mean, I love all of my scholars. But, you know, they all look the same. And we just weren't getting diverse, specifically diverse. Gender diversity, we've always got really, really right. great talents in. But very rarely do we get the diversity within uh, race, ethnicity, um, we get diversity in sector, we get diversity, we actually get a huge amount of diversity across LBGTQ. I mean, it's such a wonderful industry for that. Um, but diversity of colour, in colour, uh, in the UK, uh, atrocious. Right. Superb in the US. Like they've been working on this in the US so brilliantly for decades, which means that the investment systemically in the schools around this to encourage support shine the spotlight provide role models in yeah. ethnic minority communities in the state has been amazing so it is never an issue in our cohorts or okay. the well it's not never an issue it's always going to be a bit of an issue but it's much better in the states in the uk it's been really bad and so um we do a lot of work to seek out groups that can help us build the west so that the awareness of the academy doesn't just stay within a bubble. Because they ain't right. You're just in the bubble. That's why we all, we all recruit to tight. We talk to our own bubble. Or, yeah. You know, we're not going out. And we do work very hard to try and touch, you know, much wider communities. So that's a really big, big thing that we do. And then the last thing, we set up a charity to adjust this at a system level. So the Academy Foundation provides for young people to get jobs fully paid salary jobs in marketing media and advertising and you know they are young they are from very poor communities or so you know socio-economically poor environments challenging backgrounds and that's getting real diversity across every context into our industry at a very systemic level yeah. 18 or 20 so yeah. we we did that because we knew that the industry needed it. And since then, there's been lots and lots of others. We set up that, set that up quite a while ago, but there's now some fantastic organisations working in this space that are going to feed talent into both marketing and advertising. And so I think it's really, uh, look, it's 
really important in lots of ways, but I think, you know, people seeing those opportunities as for them, you know, and that, and because this talent is there, right. And just, you know, I, I just, I, I well, it's so it there. It's yeah. so there. And if you've had, you know, if you've faced adversity, you know, in childhood and in teen, you've faced real adver- adversity, real challenges. The the skill set and the different thinking yeah. is profound. You know, they're much more resilient. You know, than the slightly more privileged young people are. You know, they see more. They have to f- fight more. You know, they're yeah. more, and they're and they're just as ambitious, ambitious, and they're just as intelligent. They just didn't. They were just weren't able to get their parents to fund them a place at university. Yeah. But the intelligence level and the IQ is no different at all. So, you know, we're quite passionate about developing talent at that, at that level across, across you know, it, we're not just talking about racial diversity here. We're really talking about the diversity that you get in the young people that don't even have the education that yeah. we might be privileged to have. And that's really important. It's a real hobby horse of ours. And yeah, it, 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 require, it will require people that are passionate about it to, to change it and, and address it. And um, before we end, what over the 13 years, what are the changes you've seen for the better and mm. for, for the industry and CMOs? Loads actually. I, I mean, point one would just literally be that the CMOs are now far more regarded as absolutely intrinsically linked to the growth of businesses. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, win. That's taken over. <laughs> that's taken over a decade, but that's happening, and their roles are much, much broader. You know, the fellow, the fellow um, program in the earlier days would attract people, wouldn't get in, but would attract people with really quite narrow roles to to, to apply. So you know, just brand and comms exclusively, right. brand and comms. Now it's so, so, their roles are now so much wider because of, you know, they're now part finance and part IT, right? Because they're the data owners a huge amount of the time. Yeah. So, you know, they've gone from brand and comms to now brand, comms, data, technology. You know, the tech stack used to sit with the IT guy. It doesn't anymore because everything about their stack is to do with, you know, marketing. Um, the whole, you know, proliferation of social media has changed their roles beyond belief. And therefore, their roles have just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, there's a challenge in that because that means that the skill set and capabilities have to catch up. Yeah. Because, you know, you you can give your CMO all of this extra stuff, but unless they really – they don't have to be experts in any of it. But, you know, they've got to be really, really good leaders to be able to navigate that because you're literally leading very different types and styles of people. And they're now leading people in jobs that didn't exist 10 years ago. So – I think that's really positive. I think the world of marketing and advertising and media now is really exciting. God knows what AI is going to do for us. We're doing well, a lot yeah. around that at the moment because there aren't very many experts out there, right? There's a lot of people talking about it. There's a lot of people pretending they're experts, but there aren't because they haven't had long enough yet. So we're really working to get the real, real experts that, you know, originally got involved in the designing of it and we're very close. Are you? But, you know, the the social let alone economic impact of the functionality that ai is going to give us and vr is immense and i'm not sure anybody at the moment could really put their arms around what that 
will mean. Yeah. Um, but I think that's I think the challenge of what that means will sit with the marketers first and the agents yes. first. Yeah. So a very, very exciting time now. Many, many more CMOs becoming CEOs than what used to happen. A little bit more development investment in talent in both marketing and adlan now and as i said a lot a huge more support to get real diversity of thinking into our industry now it was talked about it for a long time and then over the last five or six years we're actually now seeing the doing right so very exciting i think that it cannot be a more exciting time to be in this industry now look i agree it's a it's a wonderful place to be. You know, I think we're very lucky. Um, as you think back, you mentioned earlier on when, you know, you were working as a, you know, your headhunter exec search agency and you didn't have a lot of time. Am I right? You've, you've three daughters, am I right? Yes, I have. Yeah. I have. How, how much time do you get to spend with them now? <laughs> no, I don't spend a huge amount. <laughs> spend a huge amount more with them because I travel so much but there is a very big difference difference yeah the biggest difference is that when I was at home prior to the marketing academy um I wasn't at home in my head gotcha and and therefore I wasn't there I wasn't at home with present focusing on them and now because the academy fills me with so much joy there is just less stress and anxiety around it um when i am at home i can be at home home. and i learned to i learned it was tough tough learn but i did learn to be able to really switch off and and be with them in a quite mindful way i still have to work at it if i'm completely honest because i'm now doing something i'm passionate about whereas when i was a headhunter i wasn't passionate about headhunting but i was passionate and ruthless and competitive around making sure that i was going to be the best headhunter on the planet and earning all the money that went along with it so completely different, different situation, yeah. but kind of resulting in similarities in the amount of work I do, it's just that working in the academy is a joy, and therefore it's a joy to people around me. And when I was a headhunter, it wasn't a joy to anyone. For anybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did read the stat. I don't know how true it is. I don't know how old your your daughters are, but if are they over eighteen? They're, they're seventeen, twenty seven, and twenty eight. Okay, and so I read a stat during the week, which like just filled me with dread. My youngest is is twelve, and eighty percent of your time that you spend with your children are until they're 18. And then, and yeah. then you, yeah, cause like, I'm I mean, sure they're not, you know, they're not around is what you said. They're kind of, they're, they're there today, but like, I, I, comp- I completely agree. I now think I spend much, much more quality time with my older two cause they were very young. They grew yeah. up while I was in that environment and um, I was never psychologically there. I'm fortunate that my husband is a house husband and he's incredible. And so he kind of brought them up while I was going off being stressed and melting down in the corner. And now that they're older and they've flown the nest and yeah. you know, one of them was getting married this year. Oh, wow. um, the time that I now spend with them is very, very special. And I am managing to spend a little bit more time with my youngest, but I do travel a lot. Do you? So I, yeah. I, yeah, I travel, uh, travel a lot from around Australia and, and the US. But as we grow, you know, as we grow, which may be organically, but as we grow, that will enable a little bit more funding. We'll be able to build in the infrastructure within the academy. We've already hired a UK and a MIA MD. Um, okay. 
back end of last year, which is phenomenal for me. She loves it. The team love her. And that's all. That's what enabled me to launch the APAC Fellowship Programme because I knew I'd have the head the headspace to be able to do that given the role that she's done. So as the academy gets bigger, I'll be able to br- bring in more of an infrastructure. We're a very small team. Yeah, has, how big is the team? We employ 10 people and six of them are part-time. No. So wow. it is a really tiny team. <laughs> and um, But as we as we grow, we may be able to invest more in um in hiring talent within within the business and and that will alleviate a little bit more of my time from the traveling that's yeah. the ultimate australia is not the worst place in the world to travel to though that's all i get it's heaven heaven on it? Uh, it is my spiritual homeland oh are you okay you and me both i adore it i absolutely yeah i would it's been a joy yeah. I, and the people that australia brought into my life oh my god I've literally got friends for life that Australia bought into my life. And so I haven't stayed at a hotel or an Airbnb there for six years because whenever I go, I'm staying with my Aussie family and surrounded by love and loads of people. And it's all really energetic because I don't go there very often. It's a, it's bliss. Yeah. I'm sorry. We'll do another one about Australia. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for your time i sorry one very last question funding and where is your funding come from is it corporate sponsors and i mean god forbid somebody just hits this going i can fund the marketing yeah. academy yeah if you can fund the virtual campus that would be amazing the sponsors are predominantly big corporate so our biggest global sponsor and they sponsor all 11 programs including the virtual campus is salesforce in the uk it's companies like itv bt PhD, Mars, KFC, Century Song, Bizarre Voice, down in Australia, it's brands in Australia, such as the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, IAG, which is the biggest insurance company, uh, Deloitte, Google. Google have supported us in Australia for nine years. Uh, In the States, it's people like the Wall Street Journal, but KFC support in the States as well. Mars support in the States as well as the UK. So they tend to be large brands or agencies. So Dentsu is a sponsor in Australia, for example. They're attracted to the Academy because obviously we stand for good in the industry. So they're very, very keen to partner with an organization that's so passionate, the advocating talent in the marketing world. But also, you know, it's a, it's a, excellent community and our community outside of the 1050 fellows um, alumni is huge and they love that we enable them to invest in their own talent especially through the virtual campus we used to do lectures for them but now they're all enrolled their people all over the world on the virtual on the virtual campus and it's not a huge amount of money there's different levels there's because there's different so you can sponsor the virtual campus as you know, just one sponsor. You can sponsor the scholarship program, the fellowship program, and the alumni programs. So SNAP, for example, SNAP sponsor our fellowship alumni programs in both regions. So they're different. So we've got different brands in different programs, but without them, we wouldn't exist. Yeah. They're, they're what provides all of the funding for us to keep all of the wheels on, on all of the programs. And then everything else is is donated. You know, we have to pay for the venues and all of that stuff and all of the flights and everything. But all of the actual learning is gifted. There has to be an airline out there that would sponsor you. There has to be a hotel group. Who can 
into the. I used to work in fundraising, so that's no shame. <laughs> we, did have, we did have Delta Airlines for the first sponsoring in the US, and then their CMO left, and their CMO that was there loved it, and their new CMO went, What? Well, I don't understand. And so they didn't renew. But yeah, I'm after Emirates. I've got a fellow in Emirates. I'm really after Emirates because that will get us to Australia, and we do loads of flights down there. So, um, but that is how we're how we're funded and they're amazing and it's their funding that enables us to do this for all of these thousands of people wow it's amazing and look hopefully you know there may just be someone listening to this that is get in, thinking, touch. Get in, in touch with Sherilyn um yeah. listen thank you so much for your time today I, I took you well over our our lot of time I really appreciate it um, and <laughs> you talked about legacy earlier on I don't need to tell you that you're creating a legacy and I know because I've heard you speak in other places I know this isn't about you no, it but isn't. it takes a force and you know it, it took you to have that vision never mind what happened idea. to get to the vision Just an idea an idea that got supported by many people that's what makes it what it is that's what makes but it I, I, well, I, look, I do at, at three o'clock in the morning I might think well actually if I died today it'd be a pretty good day to die and that is one of my mantras Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What? We, honestly, like, it's not a lovely way to think about it. Horrible. You know, I don't want to die, but like, no, if it was today, I, I nearly good. did. I nearly did. And on the day that happened, I was thinking today would be a really shit day to die. And and I and I made the decision. I would never think like that ever again. So it would be Amazing. a good day to die. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sherilyn, for your time. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Love speaking to you, Colin. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. I could have spoken to Sherilyn for even longer. She is so engaging and just draws you in with her charm, energy and authenticity. There's so much I didn't get to ask her, but there's so much I took away from this episode. The need to figure out the four quadrants of that Venn diagram are high on my list. Check out the marketingacademy.org if you would like to find out more. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to That's What I Call Marketing. If you did enjoy it, please do share and add comments with your feedback. You can get in touch and find all previous episodes on that's what I call marketing.com. Follow us on Instagram for some of our shorter videos, that's what I call marketing. On Twitter for that's what underscore marketing. And now you can watch our episodes back on YouTube. Yes, you guessed it. That's what I call marketing. So from me, Connor Byrne, until the next episode, take care.